Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer. And I'm Gregor Robertson. We're with you twice a week throughout the season for all the best reaction and analysis from some of the best football writers in the business. And joining us today are The Times digital sports editor Tom Clark and The Sunday Times football correspondent Jonathan Northcroft. Coming up, we're going to discuss footballers on social media, settle the Pep versus Fergie debate and see if Jack Grealish and James Madison would make it into our England Euro 2020 squads. But first to a turbulent week for Everton Football Club. It's been a baptism of fire for Carlo Ancelotti at Everton and it's not improved this week. As Paul Joyce writes in the Times today, Marcel Brands, their director of football, held face-to-face talks with a group of angry supporters who descended on the club's training ground looking to confront players in the aftermath of the FA Cup defeat to Liverpool. Seven fans turned up at Finch Farm as they sought to make their displeasure clear to Ancelotti's squad following Sunday's abject 1-0 defeat to a weakened Liverpool team. They asked security to bring the players out, and when that request was refused, it was suggested that more fans could be mobilised to turn up at the training complex and stage a blockade, highlighting the toxic nature of the fallout from the humiliating loss. It was then down to Browns, who was appointed director of football in the summer of 2018, that appeared at the gates to the complex and spoke to the supporters as he listened to a lengthy list of complaints. Jonathan, it's not that often we hear about a situation like this. What did you make of it? I mean, my first thought is I quite like Brands' action because I think there's a problem at football clubs generally where the position of the manager has, has sort of grown over the years to include being almost the club spokesman. It's just the way the media works and the fact that the manager's the one that nearly always is the sole voice on on a football club's problems. So I actually think there's a need within football clubs for other people in positions of responsibility to step up and try and be the public face. So I like the fact that Brands has taken it upon himself to try and deal with these supporters. I mean, I lived in Merseyside for many years. I know what the the, the, the passion uh, and the sort of strength of feeling and also the militancy, I suppose, of local people is in terms of their character, but also in terms of football. You know, neither Liverpool nor Everton have got passive fan bases by any means. Um, so it, it doesn't surprise me either that, that this um, this kind of action took place. I suppose the final thing it highlights is that after years of, of being disappointed by managers, let's say, um, it's natural that eventually the, 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 the tension from fans is going to turn to other people at the club and and what you do do in appointing Carlo Ancelotti if you are the sporting director you get it it's a great coup in getting one of the world's best managers but you also leave yourself nowhere to hide because um if things still aren't working then it's pretty difficult to then say oh well you know this guy just isn't a good manager it's painfully untrue I think the heat starts to come on you so uh quite a few 
sort of things um, sort of wrapped up in that incident and, and possibly uh, a sign of a new phase for Everton with fans getting more vocal and maybe the heat coming more on brands. Tom, do the Everton fans have a right to be upset by what's going on at the club? I mean, they've they've gone through a pretty rough period. I mean, it doesn't help when your near rivals are flying in the league and, you know, can beat you with their youth team. So that, you know, ob- obviously that doesn't help. I, I think Everton are fascinating in the sense that what do Everton fans actually want? And as Johnny says, you know, they've, Marcel Brands has got one of the world's best and most famous managers in now. They've spent an awful lot of money. They may well spend even more money in the coming summer window and in January window. I have my slight suspicion that Everton fans might get more upset before they get happy again. Because <laughs> if you go back to the eras of David Moyes, were they playing the kind of you know attractive football that we see more often these days? No. But were they competitive in Merseyside derbies? Yes. Were they doing their best in cup competitions? Yes, they got to an FA Cup final. And were they competing near the end of top of the league? Yes, he got he nearly got them in the Champions League. Um, you know, and they they've gone down this path of seeking to be something very different to that, and that is what's got them in in this mess. So I think yes, Everton fans are well within their rights to feel very upset, but I do think there's a discussion to be had about what they actually want from their club, um, and that, that's where they're at at the minute. And, and that's for Ancelotti, but that's one of his biggest tasks to work out, I think. You often get fans forums where supporters can go along and, and voice their opinions, often in front of members of the board and sometimes coaches and management. Is this a step too far for you, Gregor, with fans turning up at training complex demanding answers from players? I think so, yeah. I think I think it was a bit, a bit too much, to be honest. If I put myself in the kind of player's shoes and think... You know, you've got some irate supporters at the gates and threatening to blockade them <laughs> if, if uh, they don't speak to someone. You know, it's not really doing much to to improve the relations between both. And I know they had they were perfectly valid to reasons to be feeling aggrieved at the performance in the second half, but it was a bad half of football. In the grand scheme of things, Everton they've not they, their issues really have been it should really be with the sort of running of the club. Not really the players. It's, the players have been signed and given big contracts, and and we can we'll come on to talk about whether they should be the players that Everton are looking for. But I don't think you know I don't think players sort of throw in the towel and don't try. And I know that was kind of the accusation that was being levelled at, at them in the second half. I don't really think that that very very rarely happens. There's there's always sort of underlying reasons for a for a performance that sort of make us that second half. Uh, and Jonathan, I know you sort of gave a little bit of credit there to, to Brands. He, he fronted up, he spoke to to those fans that were waiting at the complex. But does that set a sort of worrying uh, precedent that more fans will turn up at other grounds or other training complexes to demand answers? Yeah, that, that's an interesting point. And, and I think I'd add that um, if you think, if you know the geography of Merseyside, um, for Everton fans to go to their training grounds, actually, quite a it's quite a big ask. It's not an inner city <laughs> training ground. It's uh, you know it's on the edge of the city, and and it takes a bit of commitment to to go and do that. Now, I guess they might feel that expedition was successful, and I guess other fans might start to look at that. And I do take Gregor's point that there's a there's a danger of of um, unrest turning into something a bit nastier, and this is kind of a little bit close to the line when you're starting to threaten players you know to blockade them and I personally I think the best way to protest at a club is to hit them in the pocket that's what that's what all owners mm. ultimately will 
react to is if you start staying away from matches or you stop buying stuff. That that's the that's the the clearest way to. to is that necessary difficult for now for Everton though? I think um, it's a difficult one because usually when supporters are protesting, um, part of the complaint is the owners haven't backed the club, and that's not the case at Everton. Mm. The owners spent money mm. almost far too freely, um, and it's it's how it's been spent, and. You know, I think Tom listed some of the the kind of issues Everton have had in trying to move away from what was a clear identity under David Moyes to something different, these kind of growing pains. And they haven't found out what they want to be. Um, and I think that's caused a lot of mixed feelings and confusion and a divide among the supporter base. It's probably not a unified fan base. For, for all those that turned up, um, you know, the, the, that wouldn't represent... Um, I wouldn't even like to put a percentage on it, but there'll be plenty of other Everton fans who, who don't feel the same. I think what unifies them all is just a sense of despair and anger. It's just they don't... Some of them are angry at the manager or have been angry at managers. Some of them have been angry at the players, some of them at the board. Um, it's kind of like they don't know where to direct their, their fury at the moment because it's been going wrong on all fronts. Mm. I mean, I think that's... I think it's interesting what you're saying, Johnny, and I thought the same, you know, I'm, I'm a fan myself and I thought mm. there was part of me that in this age of when, you know, football clubs only seem bothered about, you know, whether they've got a mattress sponsor or a tractor sponsor mm. and all this money going around that seven seven fans can turn up and actually be heard. But, you know, mm. I was discussing it with Gregor earlier and you kind of forget slightly naively the footballer side that it's not that nice to be heckled when no. in reality you probably are trying. I mean, Gregor, you must. How many times? I mean, faultless career, obviously. It's either senseless question. To I mean, no, I you mean, must have been you're amused. An, you're an absolute superstar. Yeah, careful with this, Tom. Never, how are you going to ask this? Never ever put a foot wrong is what I've heard about your career. But there must have been the odd time, surely, when a fan got on your back, and it, it can't be can't be nice. No, I mean, it, it's actually particularly uh, unhelpful when it's sort of outside the match day experience. You know, like mm. if if you're getting a bit of grief from the stands, you almost come to expect that, especially right. if things are going badly. But if you're out in somewhere in your sort of private life, or even yeah. even in training, I remember. In fact, you, you you'll know this being a Lincoln fan. But uh, when we got promoted with Grimsby, we uh, in the playoff semi-final, we lost the first leg, and when we came in to training before the second leg, there was a banner hanging over a big bridge saying like the manager needs to be sacked and stuff. And we, we still had the second leg to play, <laughs> and we got promoted that year. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> and there were some pretty irate fans in that at that times also, and it's obviously a different scale, but. Anything that's not just sort of a bit of stick from the stands yeah, is not in the heat of the moment. Is not kind of because I guess this is, this is considered and thought through, isn't it? You know, this is not this being is plan, in the yeah. stand during the game yeah. and getting a bit irate, and as we all do when we go. Yeah, just this like, is they've thought. Let's go down there. Just it's like somebody quite paint, menacing, just like it? somebody painted a flag and draped over a bridge in Grimsby. <laughs> like, you know, I think you I need mean, to get a pers- sort of some perspective about these things. It's interesting. You look a lot of Everton. F- players don't live in, in, in the city anymore. Mm. There's been a kind of move in the last few years for them to, to go and live in Cheshire in the kind of Golden Triangle, Wilmslow, Aldley Edge. And I, I think that's a sign of how uncomfortable it is um, around the city uh, for Everton at the moment. And, and I'm not criticising the fans, but Merseyside's such a, a goldfish bowl. It remind, always reminded me of Glasgow in terms of the, the intensity and the fact that everyone... You know, child to granny's got an opinion about the football, mm. and I think when you're not doing well, it's a it must be, as a player it must be a pretty difficult place to be, and and you you probably want to go outside that. So at the moment, quite a lot of Liverpool players live in the city, but not so many Everton players. Mm. 
what I should say on this, the last thing we'd want is for the, any of situation to get towards, if, if you've seen the Sporting Lisbon, what mm. happened with them a few years ago with, what, 50-odd fans or hooligans, as yeah. well, obviously it's been referred to in a court case now that's happening, where they charged into their training yeah. ground and, and, and many players were assaulted by them. So we wouldn't want it to get to that level. Um, chief among the supporters' grievances is the belief that Everton have become a destination for players to earn a big paycheck without taking on the responsibility for improving the club's fortunes. And many of the expensive signings that haven't worked out predate the arrival of Brands when it was Steve Walsh who was the Everton director of football. Brands took on board the points which were made in a meeting that, that lasted around 20 minutes and said he would relay them to players and staff. So that's after that meeting with the fans. If you look at the 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 summer business, for example, you can refer to Andre Gomez, who came in for around 22 million, Fabian Delph at eight and a half million. Um, there's also Moise Ken at 24 and a half million, Alex Awobi, 34 million, and Jean Philippe Gabamin at 25 million pounds. We've already alluded to the fact that actually Fahad Mashiri has spent an awful lot of money. I think it's closing in on 500 million at Everton. So he has spent a lot of money, but have they been the right recruitments, Gregor? Everton. No, I think you can. I think you can go back a bit further than just that summer. Although there are oh, even, yeah. even little things about that. I mean, Awobi was signed, I believe, on deadline day without taking a medical in Dubai, just because there was such l- sort of lack of planning. Mm. Um, and that's even you know, it seems to be that it's players always seem to be players on the on their way down, or it has been for there's sort of a underlying sort of trend. People like Theo Walcott. Um, people are just getting to their get into this late 20s and, and turn towards 30 and it's probably their last big contract um, and that's not to say that, that they're turning up and saying right we're going to get a big payday here and we can just like put our feet up but that's not the way it works it's just a natural sort of un- a little feeling that players have if, you, if you're taking a step down from what you know he's come from Arsenal and, and won trophies and, and same with other players you take a, a bit of a step down and it's just take your foot off the gas a tiny little bit and there's been a few of them so um, I don't think I just think there's been very little sort of coherent strategy about it. Even Richarlison, although he's younger, it's like you know they just threw fifty million quid in a guy who had a good season for Watford. It's and he's he's been a good player in spells, and I'm sure he'll be a good player for them in the future. But you know, there's not this doesn't seem to be much in the way of signing players either who are on the way up rather than on the way back down. Well, those players that I just mentioned total 114 million pounds that was spent in the summer. Um, these are unprecedented figures when it comes to Everton, Jonathan. Oh, gosh, yeah. I mean, you know, we, we, we touched on the, the David Moyes era where I think the total spend over 11 years of, of, of Moyes was about 20 million. Mm. I mean, net spend, it was absolutely ridiculous. And for years, for years, they lived hand to mouth and Moyes had to make £50,000 signings. But those £50,000 signings were people like Seamus Coleman and Nigel Martin and, you know, mm. Tim Cahill for £2 million, Mikel Arteta for £2 million. The irony is that Everton were actually better in the transfer market when they had the, almost the discipline of, of not having money. And and one of the things you notice in terms of certainly the brands era is they've, they've, they've developed a habit of going for the kind of off-cut players of bigger clubs. Um, you know, I think they've got, what, they've got three Barcelona ex-players, you know, You've got Wilby from 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 Arsenal, as as Gregor said. You know, Kean from from Juventus, and that that speaks of a club that's trying to chase something. You know, trying to look at where they want to be, and and kind of almost think that well, maybe some of that will rub off if we sign 
some players from those bigger club squads and you know you don't have to be a transfer market expert to know that that is less likely to work than getting the young up and coming player who maybe hasn't been at the big club but is is building the career rather than the one that's that's slightly coming down and uh, you know what I would say about the Steve Walsh aspect is his tenure wasn't successful ultimately but tell me a Marcel Brand signing that was as good as Idrissa Gay for example mm-hmm. yeah. if you look at Roberto Martinez tell tell me a Marcel Brand signing that was as good as Romelu Lukaku you know and then then you've still got more players in the team at the moment so uncomfortably for Brands well I don't think he's made any he hasn't had disastrous transfer windows in the way that maybe Steve Walsh had at the end but nor has he really achieved the successes either that, that Everton have had in the past. And I think it is right that the spotlight is now on him. We're going to stick with Everton and talk about one of the summer signings. That's Fabian Delph. Now, he is set to hold talks with the club after the midfielder seemingly became involved in an ugly social media spat with a fan as the fallout from the FA Cup defeat to Liverpool continues. Instagram screenshots showing direct messages from Delph's account as he replies to an angry supporter, have circulated online in the aftermath of that third-round loss. They show Delph insisting that Everton's players are just as upset at the fans at the manner of that 1-0 defeat to a young red side, as we've mentioned, before he calls the supporter a disgrace and then challenges them to air their frustrations to his face. One message also shows Delph calling a supporter a delusional little boy over his criticism of Blues players. We've spoken about social media and players using social media here on the pod before. Tom, this is the first time to get your view on it. Where, where do you stand on footballers using social media? And do you think Delph should receive some punishment for his actions? I don't think Delph should be punished for this. I mean, I would say just briefly on the previous point, I think Fabian Delph could be an excellent signing for Everton. Um, and I think by all accounts, he's someone who cares deeply about the game um, and has always given... 100% effort at his previous club Manchester City was a, played a big part in their title winning success playing out of position at left back um, and I think there's an interesting um, debate to be had because you know we criticise the likes of Jesse Lingard and people who are you know putting fashion pictures up and all that kind of stuff but then we have the flip side where there's someone who's very passionately responding to someone who's questioning his effort levels and you know he's biting back and showing that he cares and now all of a sudden the people are saying oh you know he should be banned or he should be disciplined by the club i, j- I just think that's nonsense like i if i ever I, i'm a lincoln city fan so i could easily bump into one of them in in a bar or a pub and i often do i cozy up to them and get a selfie um, <laughs> but i if i ever criticize them and they had a pop back i, I would but i would like that i would prefer that because it shows they care mm. um i I've, i think we get head into a dangerous dangerous world where we start wanting footballers to not have strong opinions about the game and about the club I mean you know those fans are turning up questioning whether Everton players care and now here we have someone who's biting back at people criticising him he clearly does care I think I, I think he's well within his rights to have a pop back at people who are, who are seeking him out on social media um, and I don't, I don't have a problem with him responding to them in, in that way well, reports suggest Everton will hold talks with Delph over that row that he had with a with an Everton fan. Uh, as I mentioned before, Jonathan, we've spoken about this many times on our pod about social media. And do you think there's more harm than good with footballers being on it? I, I think if you look at the since the start of footballers being on social media, it's it's been a, a more of a positive thing than a negative thing. 
in, in, in terms of opening supporters up to, to I guess the world footballers live in, making perhaps making them a little bit um closer. You think of some of the ways footballers have used their profiles, I don't know, like Jermaine Defoe to you know try and help people. Um but there is an ugly side. I, I know the PFA and, and Premier League have to go and do work with academy players on the mental health aspects of, of social media and, and criticism that, that players face online. So there's an underside and um I I like Tom would not want to silence players on this. I wouldn't I be, wouldn't want to punish Delft too much other than maybe remind him, you know, of of, of, of kind of responsibilities. I think there's a cowardliness from from fans who engage, you know, engage players on social media, and then when they don't like the response, you know, kind of publish them and and and, and make a song and dance. I mean, as far as I understand that, these were private messages. Um, mm. I think so. Surely you, you've got to be man enough if if you're abusing Fabian Delft to take some criticism if it comes back the other way. So, kind of, I kind of do feel a bit sorry for him in 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 this instance, and I think. Austin, you know, in in mainstream media, have to be a bit careful about slaughtering people for using social media because don't we all, aren't we all part of the same world? And don't we don't we want openness from footballers? Don't we want engagement? Don't we want supporters to be able to um, feel closer to the action? I mean, I think in general we we do, don't we? Oh, I think you're right, and I think it's helped to actually bring us closer overall. I think, but and and Tom mentioned Jesse Lingard. We should just refer to him very briefly. In that, uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has warned him about his social media usage and to think more carefully about how he is portraying himself in public. Um, believe it or not, Gregor, it wasn't that long ago that you finished playing. Um, <laughs> so, so you thought uh, earlier. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I mentioned black and white TV, didn't I? Uh, but of course. So Social media was around when you were playing, we should say that. Um, but did you ever find, <laughs> maybe it's going a little bit back onto what Tom said. How much abuse did you get? <laughs> well, no, it's sort, it's sort of along those lines. And not to say that you did, but is it hard to not bite back? Um, and look, there, I had lots of teammates who've, who definitely found it hard not to. But I kind of took a, a decision just never to reply to anything that was negative. And that, sometimes that's hard, you know. Look, because he's... No matter what fans are saying, he's his pride would be wounded after that game. He's hurting, you know. As Tom said, he's someone who does deeply care about about his game and about his team and about about football. And he sees that, and he's just kind of it's a human human sort of error, not a major one, just as a human reaction. So I, I don't think he deserves any punishment whatsoever. But it's an easy thing to do. So I, you know, I, that was me personally. I didn't. I didn't engage that much. I just mm. kind of. I don't believe that. You never had a pop back. <laughs> I don't think I did. Honestly, don't. I think uh, if something negative came, and it's still true today, you know, I can write an article and mm. someone, someone often, <laughs> quite often, can say, <laughs> "What, what are you talking about? This is nonsense," um, and I just won't respond. Yeah. So if you're listening out there, just there's no point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, whereas I do bite back. Yeah. It's terrible. I, yeah. I, I do do I that. I just think it's a bit. You know, it's not. It's a bit unedifying to get into. A, a kind of a battle with someone mm. you don't actually know, and you don't know they're what they're talking about either, really. So um, that was my own perspective. But look, I had lots of teammates who would get into all sorts of uh, squabbles with supporters, and they were slightly less high profile and probably a little bit more X-rated. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. 
because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns, so you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. As well. After Manchester City outclassed neighbours Manchester United on Tuesday night in the Carabao Cup semi-final first leg, it was the turn of Leicester and Aston Villa, which ended one all going into the second leg at Villa Park in three weeks' time. The big debate going into this game was midfielders Jack Grealish and James Madison going head-to-head. And Tom Roddy writes in the Times today that it was Grealish who came out on top. He says whilst Madison saw more of the ball, it was Grealish who was more effective. He set up the move for Gilbert's opener and almost got his seventh assist of the season when Esri Konza hit the crossbar just before half-time, before his night was completed when he nicked the ball from Madison and launched a Villa counter. So, as I say, Tom has gone for Grealish in that battle. Do we agree that Grealish came out on top? Jonathan? I, I do. I was at the game last night. Um, I really enjoyed watching Jack Grealish's performance. Um, I thought he, he won the battle fairly convincingly. It's not that Madison played badly, but what you saw from Grealish was a more mature footballer um, at this point. Somebody who um, maybe in the past, maybe when he was coming through, was more individualist and um, better in playing in moments and doing sort of eye-catching things, but not consistent over 90 minutes. And I think he's he's now developed into a player you can bank on for 90 minutes. It wasn't the big things he did, it was the little things he did that really impressed me. Just the decision-making was really, really good. Um, the ability to work off the ball for the team, the leadership, um, and then you know still retaining that X factor um, that he's that he's got. And I, I do think I'm a fan of Madison's, but I think Grealish is actually slightly ahead of him at the moment. And the, the stats bear that out. I think if you look at it in pretty much all categories over the season, then Grealish is just a little bit better in chances, goals, but also work off the ball as well. Um, and I, I love. I think he's somebody that one of those rare players that you, you turn up to a game just looking forward to, to to seeing him. Even if you think, even if that's the only thing you're going to see in the game, you know that you're going to enjoy yourself watching him. Tom, who do you think was uh, the winner last night? I think last night probably Grealish, but I do think it's an interesting conversation to pair them off against each other because it's important to put them in context. Johnny, lots of the things you've talked about there 
I think go Grealish's way because of the team he's playing for. He has this very kind of Roy of the Rovers almost, you know, role within the Villa team. Madison, for example, is playing alongside other creative players, Yuri Tillemans, Harvey Barnes, Ayosi Perez. Johnny, you referenced some stats there. I mean, Grealish for chances created from open play in the Premier League is second behind Kevin De Bruyne. He's done 46 chances from open play. Madison on 25, much further behind. But you put that in the context of the fact Madison's in a Leicester team where chances are being created all over the pitch by lots of different players, fullbacks bombing forward. I think Grealish is one of those fascinating players, a bit like Wilfred Zaha. You know, he's in a team where he is the focal point, he is the main man. And I do wonder sometimes whether they become bigger stars in our eyes by the context in which they're playing. So, you know, I, I would say that Grealish won the battle. I am a big fan of James Madison. I think it is important that he's in. He, the ball always goes. Everything good goes through him. Yeah. Um, but I also think there is something almost unique about the way that Jack Grealish carries the ball, and the way he can face up a defender and kind of. It's almost like time slows down, and he can manip- manipulate him and no, just, just sort of read how to sell the dummy to the mm. defender in a way that looks so effortless. Yeah. It's um, almost a bit like Eden Hazard. Almost he kind of just bounces off them, and he's yeah, still got more, the ball. But a bit more languid. It's yeah. almost you know he doesn't look that quick, and but he's you see him running with the ball, and he tears away from people. He's I, I was actually we I think we had this discussion about three months ago. I was in I was in the Madison camp really. I think you know for a little a kind of one off spark of magic and. You know, especially in England's team as well. I think, I actually think there might be more, more room for him to play in England's team, and that he can sort of find little pockets of space between the lines, whereas Grealish often drifts from from wide. Mm. Um, so I, I was in that camp, but I think I think uh, I think Grealish has improved a lot over the season. He's got his best goals return with eight as well for the season, um, and I think I think Grealish probably is just edging it for him so far this season. But I do think it would be fascinating if we could swap them. And put Madison <laughs> in that team yeah. and see how effective he would be. Talk about chances created. You know, everything would go through it. You know, corners, free kicks, every single thing would go through James Madison if he was in Villa's team. And yeah. I wonder whether Jack Grealish would have as big an impact in Leicester's team as he does in Villa's team. And I, I just think that's that's got to be an interesting part of it as we like. Then if he was if he was teeing up Jamie Vardy instead of Wesley, then the assists total might be. That is also true. Yeah. That's true. And it's a it's a difficult it's a fascinating debate in terms of how we evaluate players and you think of um, um, Matt Letizia mm. and and that type of player who was the the big fish um, for a club and we never got to see Letizia outside the the boundaries of of Southampton we didn't even really get to see him for England now I don't think that's going to be the case with Jack Grealish because I think whatever happens this year. Um, He's gonna he's he's gonna end up playing somewhere bigger. So maybe we will get to find out in a way that we didn't with with Letizia. Um But it is it is it, it's, it is one of those where we all love our stats, but providing the context around them is also mm. uh, part of it as well, isn't it? Well, it was a, a fascinating battle that we witnessed last night, and it leads to the question of whether both Grealish and Madison will make it into England's Euro 2020 squad. England have games against Italy and Denmark in March before Gareth Southgate must name his 23-man squad for this summer's Euros. Madison made his England debut against Montenegro in November, whilst Grealish yet to be named in a squad. Uh, These were England's seven midfielders in the last squad in November. Ross Barkley, Jordan Henderson, Madison, Mason Mount, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, Declan Rice and Harry Winks. 
Do you think both Grealish and Madison Tom can be called up into a, an England squad? They can be called up, but if Euro 2020 was tomorrow, I'd take Madison and not Grealish. Because I'd, I think, and particularly when you think about Gareth Southgate with the World Cup, and we talked previously in the pod about Everton and styles of play, Gareth Southgate clearly wants players who can fit within a system that he knows how he's going to play. You know, at the World Cup, Jesse Lingard, everyone's going, what the hell's he doing in the team? Well, he was that midfield runner up and down, tracking back with a you know bit of a creative spark. James Madison fits, I think, in Southgate's team. I don't know where Jack Grealish, what kind of role yeah. is he going to play in Gareth Southgate's team? Is he going to be that you know Harry Winks-style midfielder? Is he going to be a little bit further forward than that? And I don't know whether a couple of friendlies between now and a tournament, which... Yeah you know a lot of England fans are going to be hoping they get to at least the semi-finals Talent, talented player no doubt uh, he wouldn't be in my squad I think the next friendlies should not be about experimenting with people who have yet to make an appearance they should be about honing those midfielders you know people like Ross Barkley a lot of my friends you know why the hell is he in the England team it's because mm. Gareth Southgate knows what he can do mm. knows how he fits knows how he can use him I, I, I wouldn't be taking Grealish yeah, so I kind of tend to agree. I also got to remember, like, Deli Ali again. We, a few weeks ago, we were saying he was sort of going through a bit of a resurgence, and be interesting to see what happens between now and the end of mm-hmm. the season with him. But I think there's only going to be one of them, definitely. You know, you look at that, that group of players there, um, Barkley is not likely to fall out. Oxley Chamberlain, as long as he's fit, is definitely going. Henderson is definitely going. You know, Mason Mount, it's hard to it's hard to see who. Who falls out uh, out of that group other than Madison for Grealish? So you know, I think it's one or the other at the moment. I think, despite all I've said, I'm probably in the same camp as you. Tom, I've swayed you. <laughs> no, no, I said it before. I think for because of the team, the way he plays, and he's not going to play wide. England have got a sure foot of yeah, exactly. Of such talented wingers. Out wide, doesn't he? No chance he's going to play wide. So, and I, I think to fit in the system and to sort of the way they want to kind of press as well. I think, and that's not really his stress. Mm. I think that's not his strength. Sorry. I think probably Madison is more likely to go. I know, Jonathan, it's it's been well argued about the team that Grealish is playing in. Do you think that's what's holding him back from Gareth Southgate picking him? Is it a surprise that he's not yet had a chance? No, I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to end up disagreeing with the lads, actually. Ooh, um, we like that. I think, yeah, I think, what, I think what's holding him back is actually the English coaching antipathy towards the Maverick, and that goes back. I mentioned Matt Letizia, you could... You could name many other players throughout history. I think there's always been a, a suspicion in English football of the the player that's a bit different, the X factor player, and I think that's held England back. I think I think there's quite often at the the very highest top level in tournaments, there's just that little bit bit missing um, for England, and certainly creatively, I think Paul Gascoigne was probably the the closest to providing it in in our lifetime, and and that's the closest England actually came really in that era, you know, Euro, Euro 96 and, and the World Cup 90 to to actually winning something. And and I think the lesson is that, that um, England need to set aside the kind of natural suspicion towards the, I don't know, maybe the the, 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 the player that's just not quite the, the team-orientated, good citizen, you know, the, the kind of regular template that managers have. You can't have a whole squad full of them. But I think there's room for one of them, and I, I, I think England are well enough provisioned for good, um, hard-working, nice boy professionals that Gareth can work with. I think there's room within the the 23 for a for a match winner, um, and good as James Madison is, 
um, and he's maybe got the edge in terms of set pieces, so you've got to bear that in mind. I just think Grealish has is, is got slightly more um, likelihood of winning your game, slightly more personality at this point, and that running with the ball that um, Gregor talks about, I mean, that that's the kind of thing that uh, at tournament level can break apart a game, especially in the latter stages against um, you know, tiring and, and, and ageing teams. Um, so I I would be in the I would be very much in the Grealish camp. But with that, we're not falling back into the kind of you know old England habits of where you know we get to near a tournament and all of a sudden mm. there's a big debate about changing squads. You know Fabio Capello yeah. trying to get Paul Scholes out of retirement to give us a bit of difference in midfield. You know you talk about mm. Mavericks. You know the the France team that won the World Cup have got an incredible squad of talented players, but I don't feel that it, watching them play during the World Cup. That there was much maverick about the way they played. Oh. Even even Paul Pogba, you know, the ultimate maverick in club football for Manchester United, had a clear role in a three-man midfield: get the ball, turn, give it Kylian Mbappe. I mean, you know, they had midfielders Blaise Matuidi, just very effective, do the job, a clear way of playing. You know, and Deschamps picks the same players over and over again, so they all play together. They all know what they're doing. They know their roles. You know, and I, I just feel Grealish, as talented as he is. It, it, we end up going back to that thing with before a big tournament, where we're you know harking back to Gascoigne and all this kind of stuff and brilliant players that I watched as a kid. But that whilst they may yes come on, drop the shoulder, beat two men and play a brilliant ball to win a game, they may also disrupt a squad that is completely unified and has a clear goal and knows exactly what their responsibilities are on the pitch. Well, I, I don't I don't disagree with that point about disrupting the squad, but I mean I. I'd argue that Grealish should have had his chance long before now. So that's actually a problem Gareth Southgate's created by yeah. not by not yeah. picking him up till now and, and there's this room still to, to correct it. I mean, yes, Deschamps did use Pogba and, and Griezmann and Mbappe in fairly defi- well clearly defined ways, but those are three players with with X factor with that little bit of difference. So you can't you know, France did and they did use that at times. You think of the Germany team with you know Mario Goetz at the time was able yeah. to just do that little thing that was a bit different. I, 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 and I don't see Grealish as a as a problem player in terms of not adhering to team disciplines either. I think you know I was talking about his maturity, and the, if you look at the, the the work off the ball now, the pressing stats and all that kind of stuff, I think he's I think he's got it in him. I, 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 you're right about it's uncomfortable putting him in now, but that's that's Gareth's fault for. Not having not having done it before, quite honestly. I think the thing to say is neither of them are going to start as it stands. So yeah. it's kind of like yeah, true. <laughs> you, I can see your point in saying you're taking uh, Grealish because he's sort of man who might be able to come off the bench and be the mm. the Maverick match winner. But I think actually neither of them really are looking likely to start at the moment. Don't so. put the kibosh on our debate. Well, well, who, would mean, you, who would you, who you start? Who would huh? you start? He's probably going to play what a you know three of those, isn't he? The hardest point actually is the is whether you play a, a pivot. So I don't know. Yeah. If, you know, I'm not a massive fan of Declan Rice, but I think Jordan Henderson and Chamberlain will, will start if they're fit. Yeah. So it's who the other one is, well, and whether and whether they play with one sitting or two. See, I, I, this is. I mean, I, I think you've got to pick Henderson and Winks. Right. I mean, it, Winks has connected England better than the net other players in that position. You have to have Henderson. So then you're looking at one other, and you know, are we really saying that Grealish has to be behind, you know, Mount Ali? Lingard, Oxlade, Chamberlain. None of these players are so convinced. Well, Barkley. None of these players are so convincing that I'd say, well, yeah, you know, you can't, you can't get in there for different reasons. 
you know, Bartley's been injured, been out of the team. Ox has been injured. Uh, Lingard's fallen off a cliff. And, and Mount, to me, has not quite looked ready. And then Deli Ali's almost playing as a striker under Mourinho. So I actually think there is a vacancy. Um, and, and I wouldn't even say that if he goes, he would have to be a, a substitute. I think there's, I think it's open enough that, that somebody could grab hold of that, that sort of final midfield place. To the pick of the weekend's Premier League action then, which sees Tottenham host Liverpool in the late kickoff on Saturday. It will see two of the biggest names in management go up against each other in Jose Mourinho and Jurgen Klopp in what will be Liverpool's first match at the redeveloped White Hart Lane, of course. Mourinho has won just two of his ten games against Klopp-managed teams and the visitors are definitely the favourites against a Spurs side who have won just one of their last five matches. Liverpool's unbeaten run in the league stretches back to last season and currently stands at 37 games so if they can avoid defeat at Spurs then they'll have gone the equivalent of a season without losing but of course there is no Harry Kane for Tottenham is there Tom any case then for Spurs stopping Liverpool's unbeaten run I mean I'm a bit of a romantic but is there (laughs) anything more Jose Mourinho than beating Liverpool in this game (laughs) without Harry Kane I mean you know I, I think Harry Kane is obviously a world-class striker. Um, but, you know, you look at Tottenham last season, they produced big performances without him in the Champions League. They got past Ajax without him. And and part of me thinks that maybe with the likes of Son and Lucas Moura trying to get in, run in behind, exploit those space left by Robertson, Trent Alexander-Arnold in the full-back areas. I mean, I, mean, I could... I'm, I'd probably sound mad, but I could just see it. I could see a Tottenham, even like a 2-1, two, 2-0 two, two win... You know, getting goals on the counter attack. I think this it, it's set up for Mourinho to to um, to get the fans behind him and uh, you know pro- to produce an upset that would stop you know Liverpool ticking that box of a season unbeaten. You know, it, it's it, it it's just it's made for him. I think. Gregor, you're, I think you're, you're laughing g- <laughs> away there. I think you're giving Mourinho far too much credit. I think that's maybe the Mourinho of old. You know, I was watching the, the Gary Neville soccer box thing the other day when and he was speaking to Steven Gerrard and he was talking about. When the game when Gerard slipped, yeah, and uh, and they were, they were talking about how how much Josie Mourinho went out to to spoil that game. He'd spoken to Ashley Cole recently uh, since about it, saying he he's, he said to them beforehand, spoil everything, slow down with the throw-ins and all that. And I could see him trying to do all these same things. He'll try to do everything he can to upset yeah. the apple cart, but he's not got Chelsea. He's got he's got a Tottenham team that he can't keep can't keep a clean sheet with, whose defence looks very porous and. He's not really seemed to have to kind of got to grips with it yet, so I think it's a Liverpool win all day. <laughs> all right, well, when they win, you can get me back on. But, well, let, let me just ask Jonathan for his, for his take on it, because obviously Tom did allude to the fact that last season there were a couple of spells where there was no Harry Kane for Tottenham. In particular, if you go back to around about a year ago, they actually went on a, a five-game winning streak in the Premier League without Harry Kane. So can you sort of see the romantic side of things that Tom has gone for? <laughs> I, you can't you can't rule it out with with either Mourinho or in fact you, you've got you got it you got to say Son as Thanks, a John. special player. <laughs> in but I think I think what it does, what Kane's absence does, is it, it gives Mourinho carte blanche to just go ultra Mourinho to go to his back six to go to a kind of true underdog performance, which he kind of likes being in that position. He doesn't he, he, you know he doesn't want to take the initiative in games against big opponents. He's he's too reactive a coach for that. But he, this gives him a get out clause. This gives him justification for 
for sitting in. And he did that a couple of times with Man United and he didn't beat Liverpool but by by doing it. But he, he got um he got results. He got, you know, ground out draws, frustrated Liverpool. I mean his last game of course was was a defeat by Liverpool, but um he was able to he was able to sort of do this a couple of times, make it nasty. Um I, I think there's less about Kane actually than the fact that Liverpool are just uh, levels above um, where, where they've been before mentally and, and as a side. And at the moment, it's just hard to see them slipping up. But I could just about see the, the gritty Mourinho nil-nil nasty draw. 2-0 Tottenham, I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, this week's Manchester derby in the League Cup has seen the Guardiola versus Alex Ferguson debate reignited. It all started when Gary Lineker caused a stir on social media in the build-up. We're getting a few plugs in for Gary Lineker know, yeah. today, claiming Guardiola has had the biggest positive influence on English football in its history. Lineker tweeted this. He, in reference to Guardiola, has had arguably the most positive influence of anyone ever on our game. Total respect for Sir Alex's achievements, and of course, he is the most successful, but that's an entirely different thing. Guardiola has changed the way we play and think about the game, from our obsession with direct play to total football, and they said it couldn't be done. Well, that suggestion, as you might expect, caused some outrage on the red half of Manchester. And Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, the United manager, responded by insisting his former boss remains peerless. Guardiola was high on United's wish lists of managers that they wanted to succeed Ferguson before his retirement. The pair even met for dinner in New York during Guardiola's sabbatical year after leaving Barcelona. That led to widespread claims he could take over at Old Trafford. But by the time Fergie eventually left the club in 2013, Guardiola had already agreed to take over at Bayern Munich. So where do we stand on the Guardiola versus Ferguson debate? Who would come out on top for you, Tom? Um, I would put probably Ferguson top purely because nothing winds me up more about modern football than <laughs> when people talk about good football and what they mean is Guardiola style football. And I think we've headed down this path, you know, you could even link it back to Everton at the start of uh, our discussion. You know, all these teams want to try and play like him. And if they don't, all their fans want to play like him. And we've ended up in this world where, you know, lots of teams are trying to to mirror to mirror that style of play. I mean, from that point of view, he has had a huge influence, but I think you know, you can you can't question Ferguson's influence over that length of time building each team, different teams as well, different styles of play with different players. Um, you know, the, if you look at the Cristiano Ronaldo, Tevez, Rooney team, compare that to the team of the early 90s with Cantona, you know, the way they played was quite different. You know, he brought brought through lots of young players. Um, I think to say Guardiola, who's come into an already well built club, ready, ripe for you know more investment um, for a few seasons, to say he's had a greater influence than Sir Alex Ferguson is is, I think, a pretty stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I think the two things to say: one is that Guardiola's effect on British football was felt long before he joined Manchester City. Yeah, true. I think. You know, it's obviously been accelerated since he's been here, and but also Ferguson for so long sort of foresaw the future. He mm. so you know the change from four four two to an extra man in midfield, um, just changes in tactics and everything to keep you know changing his assistant manager every few years. Things to sort of keep pace with what was happening in European football, which kind of had an effect on on English football. So, and he did he did it for twenty five years nearly. So um, yeah, it's got to be it's got to be Ferguson. 
you can't ask an Aberdeen fan if anyone knows <laughs> Alex Ferguson. Um, and I, I, I just want to agree with what the lad said. I think there's a, quite a lot of recency bias going on with Lineker's comments. You've also got to remember, football's quite tribal in this sort of style of play debate that Tom mentions. And, and you've got to remember, you know, Lineker's a Barcelona man. Yeah. And of course, the Barcelona school is going to say that Guardiola and Coifu in football is, is, is the ultimate thing. But um, while that might have had more influence on world football, I just think Ferguson helped build the Premier League. He had 25 years, he produced generations for of players for different England teams. Cristiano Ronaldo, Wayne Rooney, Eric Cantona, you could keep going. It's, it, it, I think even Guardiola wouldn't make that claim, to be honest. So, so Jonathan, maybe it's an obvious question to ask, having just declared your Aberdeen, um, being an Aberdeen <laughs> fan, but um, would Sir Alex Ferguson top your list of, say, the, the top five managers who've had a positive impact on English football? I think he would. I think he would. I mean, it depends how far back you want to go. Because you could you could start to talk about Bill Shankly, you could start to talk about Matt Busby, you might even mention Herbert Chapman as somebody that redefined what, what actual management football management was, the importance of the the football manager. But if we're, I guess if we're talking modern era, then it would have to be Ferguson. I would put Guardiola high up. He has he has changed people's thinking, um, but I, I think yes, Ferguson in the modern era. Do you have a top five? Uh, if we're going modern era, I'd, I'd say Ferguson. I'd have to say Wenger because there wouldn't be a Guardiola if there wasn't a Wenger, mm. if you know what I mean. Wenger opened the way for foreign coaches, foreign coaching, foreign methodology when it came to you know the sports science side and training. So I think they remain the two fathers of, of, of where we are now. And maybe after that, I'd put Guardiola with Klopp coming up fast on the rails. Because Klopp is now, if you speak to football managers now, Klopp has a English managers or, or managers in England identify a lot with Klopp. Probably identify with them more than they do with Guardiola. So I think his influence is to come. You know, there'll be a generation of younger managers who are trying to be like Jurgen Klopp. But at the moment, my top three, I suppose, would be Fergie, Wenger, Guardiola. Anyone wish to disagree? I mean, how Joe, Jose Mourinho has not got a mention yet. Is, <laughs> I mean, I don't, he's not got. He's not. He's not paying me for all these mentions. But I mean, you know, he came in at Chelsea. You could argue that the period when Jose Mourinho had his biggest impact on Manchester United was when he was Chelsea manager rather than his time at Manchester Ooh. United. Because he made Ferguson in his latter years up his game, you know, another five, tenfold. And also, you know, Mourinho's era of coming into Chelsea enhanced the quality of the Premier League, made all the other teams raise their game and coincided with the period where we had English teams reaching semi-finals and finals of Champions Leagues every season. Um, and I think he's, you know, he's a manager who is also suffering from a bit of revisionism now. When, you know, he's he's struggling to potentially adapt to the Klopp Guardiola era of, era of things. Um, and so I, I, he would be third after Ferguson and Wenger for me. I think it's a bit of revisionism. Revision, it's a easy for me to say. <laughs> revisionism for uh, uh, for Arsene Wenger as well. I think, you know, his his latter period was. Was was one of decline, but for someone who revolutionised sort of English football and and one club to such an extent, I don't think anyone did more than more than Wenger. So I would put him, I'd put him top for a positive mm. impact on English football. With like, because like I say as well, Ferguson was someone who I think he saw the trends and what direction football was travelling, and he was he was ahead of most, and that's that's how he kind of maintained his success over such a long period of time. I would just put Wenger above Fergie. Do we not also need to kind of give a little nod to 
you know, the kind of the Roy Hodgson's, the Sam Allardyce's of the Premier League. No. No. <laughs> Go on, Tom, tell us why. No. Why are you giving them a nod? Because now we have this ultra-competitive Premier League and we have done for quite a number of years now. And I remember being, watching the Premier League when it was, a, you know, two or three teams who were good and everyone else kind of rolled over, really. And there was no kind of game plan. You know, these managers worked out a way for teams with less talented players to, to compete against the big boys and, you know, pull off amazing feats, you know, where teams finish six when they really should be battling against relegation. You're not. You're saying that's not an influence on. Well, yeah, but it's still happening. On Premier no. League football, it's still happening. No. Yeah, I, I know. Chris Wilder's because... getting into that real. Oh, I know. Yeah. Well, we'll put Chris Wilder well, in there. He's not going to top five. So. <laughs> Surprised he didn't. Um, yeah. yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> we do talk a lot, a lot about Chris Wilder, obviously on so. this. But uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> in the end, it went. We went for a top three. It seems, but. If I was going to go for a number one, I kind of have to agree with Gregor and Arsene Wenger. The extra extras that he brought to the Premier League with the sports science and even the fact that he was so hands-on at the training ground and, and being involved with the academy and things like that. I think, you know, for me, Arsene Wenger perhaps would be the, the manager, I would say, has had the most positive impact on English football with respect to everyone else that's been mentioned because they've all been brilliant as well should probably put that in as a caveat um, Saturday's championship action kicks off with a cracker I would say that wouldn't I as Brentford host rivals QPR in the last ever West London derby at Griffin Park the rivalry dates back to 1967 when the Brentford chairman Jack Dunnett had been in secret talks with his QPR counterpart Jim Gregory and had struck a deal which would see QPR move into Griffin Park and would see the bees wiped from existence. Now, Brentford fans' response to that was immediate. Led by the charismatic supporters club chairman, Peter Pond-Jones, the fight back began on a triple front, raising funds, raising awareness and confronting Dunnett on his intentions. A saviour eventually arrived in the shape of former shoe magnate and Plymouth Argyle chairman Ron Blindle, but not before weeks of hard work and fundraising by the supporters. And there has been a healthy rivalry ever since. Although QPR fans might suggest otherwise but as a Brentford fan I certainly have a distaste for those R's down the road I mean how just just how much of a distaste Natalie because I mean this is this is a rivalry that I'm I'm not that familiar with I'll be honest well I'll get, I mean QPR as I say would probably say they don't have a rivalry because for a lengthy period of time they're in the Premier League and we weren't in the same league so for, they're for the, quite they're a the while. big boys are they well, they would look upon it like that. But the <laughs> fact that a club wanted to, to buy us or buy our ground and then we would have been put out to pasture somewhere else and wiped from existence, you can understand why Brentford fans have a massive issue right. with, with QPR. And it is a rivalry, rivalry I should say, that has uh, has been long-standing. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's a game that I do not look forward to, I have to say. It, even though you love a rivalry... It's a game I will go to and think, why am I here? Why am I here? Why am I here? Well, <laughs> when it's nil-nil or very close or whatever it is. So can't watch. It really game. is. Yeah. In fact, taking on Fulham is exactly the same. When it's right. just one of your close rivals, it's never something I particularly enjoy. But the Brentford Community Stadium is set to be completed in time for the start of next season, meaning Brentford will leave Griffin Park, which has been our home since 19... Uh, <laughs> sorry. Our home since 1904. And it will be very sad to leave our famous old ground. It's not an easy place to come to. I presume you've played at Griffin Park, Yeah, Craig? yeah. One of the smallest OE changing rooms in the football league. Oh, it's league, delight, isn't it? Horrible. It's oh. very <laughs> hospitable. Yeah. Uh, I hear. And really I close as well. So close to the pitch, the, the stands. So, it's, yeah, it's a really good place to play. I don't think I've ever won there, actually. Good. Glad to hear it. But I, I, know I haven't... I haven't been in the away dressing room actually, but I'm guess I'm told that the toilet door doesn't even close. It's that small. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Lovely. Yeah, Must it's lovely. Fun. Yeah. So you some, sometimes catch a 
of something, a view of something you don't want to, yeah. and you're walking past it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's a lowering the tone a bit there. But you, <laughs> you talk about the intimacy of the toilet, the intimacy of the ground. Griffin Park is well known in, in football circles for being the only football ground in England to have a pub on each corner. That will obviously go when we move to our new stadium. And right now, things on the pitch are going very well for Brentford. Third in the championship on 43 points, which is nine behind Leeds and West Brom, the top two on 52. So looking at the state of play in the championship, still some way to go. Who do you think is going to get promoted? Is it with Leeds and West Brom nine points clear? Is it done and dusted, Gregor? Not at all. And I think Brentford are probably the, the biggest threat to those two. Uh, I can see you getting very oh, happy excited. It scares me when people say this. <laughs> well, I mean, Leeds. We watched. I'm sure we all watched Leeds against Arsenal on uh, on Monday night, and mm. you know they were irresistible in the first half. But that that was Leeds in a microcosm. There, it's kind of the second half. They faded mm. a little bit. They couldn't score. They've got a shocking uh, shot conversion rate. So, the, and you never know with Leeds and Bielsa. You know, they're thrilling to watch, but we just never know what's going to happen. Right up until the end, Leeds fans will be absolutely terrified. Uh, and I think Brentford. Are so well placed in terms of the number of goals they're scoring. You know they've got what they call them BMW, the front three up front: um, Ben Rama, Mbwemo, and Watkins. They scored all four goals against Bristol City on, on New Year's Day, um, and their recruitment has been been remarkable. Every year they sell sell at least one of the best players, mm-hmm. and they manage to replace them. Um, so I think I think it looks pretty good for Brentford. I think you know Fulham have probably got the best squad if you're looking looking at the table. They've probably got the best squad. In the championship, but I just I don't think they're really being fired on all cylinders. Um, if you can ask me who's going to go up, I think it probably will be that top two, unfortunately. But I think Brentford oh, will push them. Oh, you give and then take away. <laughs> Who are you going for, Tom? I mean, I I think Brentford probably are the best of that playoff bunch. I think Swansea, Steve Cooper's doing a great job there. I think they they play a really attractive style of football, not necessarily good, uh, but and uh, Fulham have got a great squad. I think. I do wonder whether it could be one of those seasons which we do see in the Championship where the top two are quite clearly the strongest. They've got massive supporter base. There's that kind of discussion that they should be in the Premier League and they end up looking at each other all season and then they forget that there's four or five teams behind them that could catch them. You know, you saw it in the match the other night. I felt that Leeds and West Brom were quite cagey in the way they approached that game, played out in a draw. Mm. You know, you could easily see one of them, potentially even both of them, you know, drop a few points and then the likes of Brentford, Fulham pick up a few points and it becomes a four horse race for two places and one of them could slip out. I actually think West Brom are potentially better equipped overall as a squad. Um potentially need to work out how to score goals a bit a little bit better and not rely so heavily on Charlie Austin. But I think they might be a little bit better equipped than Leeds. Um because, you know, as Gregor says, the the nerves do do play a part and the past narratives do, you know, I think you know, rest heavy on uh, on um, you know the minds of the players and the city. And a colleague uh, had a friend go to Leeds, and they were talking about, oh, I've not been to Leeds for ages. You know, what's it like? And the cab driver just said, until Bielsa gets us promoted, nothing matters. <laughs> you know, and, and that, that's that's what that's what the city's like. You know, that's what that what's that's what they will be feeling. I'm sure with them sat at the top of the table at this point in the season. Mm. Uh, Jonathan, who would you like to be promoted from the Championship? Well, it's a kind of cliched answer, I suppose, but it has. I'd have to say Leeds, just from the point of view of all the all that they bring 
uh, if they if all that they would bring if they came to the Premier League. I mean, it, it, it is fascinating for the reasons Tom says. Well, I, I'll, I'll, the reason I'll give you the benefit of the doubt is you haven't seen Brentford yet, Jonathan. So that's all I'll say. No, I'm interested. What's the manager like? I mean, I, he, he's intriguing to me, where he's come from and, and whether he would be a, a Premier League manager. I, I mean, I love Thomas Frank. He's quite a character. Mm. If you get him away from a, a microphone in terms of a broadcast microphone, then my goodness, he likes to swear. He's a bit of a, yeah. In fact, I, d- I did say to him once, would you like to come on the radio? And he, the first question he said was, can I swear? And I was like, no, you can't. Um, no, he's, he's, he's a real character. He's very meticulous. Um, obviously took over from, from Dean Smith and carried on that the expansive playing style that, that we're now used to at Brentford. But he was very um, sure of the changes he wanted to make. He knew defensively we had problems. He wanted to bring experience in, uh, which he has done with Pontus Janssen, as we know, who was at Leeds. He also spoke about the mental side of the game and how important that was. So he's really worked on that with the players, making sure that we, we do last the full 90 minutes and that you know we don't concede late goals, which tends to be the way that we're going right now. We have, we've been quite resilient and quite strong when it comes to games this season. Um, can he make it in the Premier League? Well, I hope so. And I hope it'll be with Brentford, obviously, Jonathan. So, I mean, that's that's an obvious question. But do you know what? He's a great guy, a yeah, real character. And I think he's, he's a real um, student of the game. Obviously, didn't have a playing career as such and, and has worked in Scandinavia mainly. But, um, you know, he's a massive fan of, of Bielsa. So you'd like to think as a student of the game, he, he knows what he's talking about. And, and we're certain, certainly certainly paying dividends right now for us at Brentford. So... We're loving life right now, that is for sure. But that is it for now. Many thanks to our guests today, Jonathan Northcroft and Tom Clark. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. It is just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. Search The Times subscription for more information and we'll be back on Monday. game is brought to you by the times for more information and more podcasts from the times head to thetimes.co.uk hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget check out quince they've got all the good stuff shirts and polos activewear and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands and the best part They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.